This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 24th. 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode, the focus of Modernist Bread was to explain everything there is to know pretty much about bread, which turns out to be one of the most complex and technological foods that we commonly consume. That's W. Wade Gibbs. You've heard him on Science Talk frequently in the past few months as he's brought us in-depth coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. Wade is a contributing editor here at Scientific American. He also works with Nathan Mirvald, the principal author of the multi-volume Modernist Cuisine. The sequel, if you will, is Modernist Bread, for which Waite was a writer and editor. Midway through talking to Waite, we'll hear a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. Before COVID hit, Waite and I were at the same conference in San Francisco, so we got together to talk about bread. Wait, we had Modernist Cuisine how long ago? 2011. Let's get the quick summary of that project and then what this project is. Sure. Modernist Cuisine, the art and science of cooking, was a five-volume, about 2,500-page encyclopedic treatment of savory cooking, uh, including the history from Roman times to the present, uh, but with a focus on avant-garde cooking, hence modernist in the name, referring to the modernist movement throughout the arts of all kinds that has come most recently to the culinary arts. And Modernist Cuisine presented uh, as well the science behind what goes on in the kitchen. The kitchen is really the laboratory we all have in our houses where we all do experiments every day, whether we think of them that way is not or not, and whether we control them or don't. <laughs> and it explained in a very visual way through innovative photography and illustrations, what's really going on inside the oven, inside the pot when it's cooking, and explain some new techniques you can use that are inspired by science and some of the tools that scientists use that have been adapted by chefs to use in the kitchen. Things like uh, controlled temperature water baths and vacuum seals and uh, high speed uh, homogenizers and so forth freeze dryers. So all these kinds of tools that have been used to make pharmaceuticals and fast food, really convenience foods, have now been adapted to make high-end, really delicious, really exciting, intellectually stimulating foods as well. And Modernist Cuisine taught people how to do that. And now this project, which follows up on that and which you've been working on for a long time. This project called Modernist Bread, the Art and Science, is uh, an equally large and encyclopedic book, but it's focused on one kind of food, on bread. And I, on, on this project, I was a contributing writer as part of a large team headed by Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya, the main authors on the, on the book. The focus of Modernist Bread was to explain everything there is to know pretty much about bread, which turns out to be one of the most complex and technological foods that we commonly consume. There's so much that goes into it from the processing of the grains all the way through to the fermentation that happens, which involves some pretty interesting microbiology, to you know the packaging and, and, and different forms and textures and shapes that, that result in literally millions of different kinds of bread products that yeah. we eat, many of which we don't even think of as bread products necessarily. Gosh, very short sentence that really caught my eye is baking is applied microbiology. It's true. 
we don't think of it necessarily in those terms when we're doing it, but what you're doing is controlling, you're creating an ecosystem in a bowl. And if you're making a sourdough, for instance, you're actually controlling by the conditions you set the competition among probably hundreds, if not thousands of different species of microbes. There are all of the sort of ambient microbes that are always floating around in the air and on your kitchen surfaces. And when you make a dough by mixing together the ingredients for your bread, they're in there. When you make a starter for your sourdough, you have, uh, you might have, you might be adding a sourdough starter that has uh, some bacteria in it, some lactic acid secreting bacteria, LABs, and you might have some yeast in there, probably do. Those may be dominant, but there are all kinds of other microbes in there that are competing for those same sugars and starches that are the food. We're in San Francisco, so you reminded me, I got to go get some sourdough while, while we're here, actually. there's long, It's long been suspected, and, and science has proved it's true to a certain extent, but only to a certain extent, that the environment determines the character of a sourdough, and that you know, people have associated San Francisco with sourdough um, for a number of reasons. There's historical reasons that sourdoughs are easy to sort of transport, and so if you're a gold miner, one of the 49ers, you know, coming... To, uh, to, to make your fortune in the West, panning for gold, you might be carrying your sourdough starter with you, mm -hmm. right? And, um, but then there's also the, the case that San Francisco has a unique microclimate and it has unique fungi that grow here and live around here. And just like uh, Belgian beers take on the character of what's grown around them and what's in the air, the fungi that are in the air and the bacteria around them that then go into the tanks of fermenting beer and give off those byproducts that give the beer their characteristic flavor, the same can happen to bread if you let it out in the open so that it's exposed to all of the living life floating around in, in the atmosphere. And there's so much life in the atmosphere that people might not even recognize because I think it's somewhere in the chapter I read that uh, if you take a deep breath, you're going to inhale many species of, of fungal spores and, and other things. Yeah, we can't see them because they're so small. They're smaller than dust even, but you're, you're breathing, your lungs are filled with millions of fungal spores. Sorry if that freaks you out, <laughs> but it's just, take a deep yeah. breath. <laughs> yeah. It's when you think about um, protecting bread from spoiling, right, from going moldy, yeah. uh, in a way it's, a, it's kind of a fool's errand. You can cover the bread and that will, you know, reduce the number of spores landing on the bread. But as soon as you pull it out from the oven, it's starting to get coated in yeah. fungal spores. And they're just going to be there and they're going to do their thing and try and reproduce as best they can. That's nowhere near the most disgusting thing <laughs> in, in the chapter about what your food is covered with. But anyway, um, and another thing I had not ever thought about, uh, succinctly put, bread is pasteurized when it comes out of the oven. I mean, that's why it's one of the safer foods to eat. Indeed. It's easy to be misled um, by that into thinking that bread is sort of invulnerable, that it can't transmit foodborne illness. It's, it is the case that the vast majority of foodborne illness is transmitted by wet foods, not by dry foods. Um, bread is a classically dry food. And as such, it's relatively inhospitable to bacteria. And bacteria are the usual culprits in foodborne illness, not fungi. 
Um, as soon as bread comes out of the oven, though, the first thing it hits typically are human hands. Uh, with all of the life teeming upon them <laughs> that then gets transmitted to the bread. And that's where the risk of foodborne illness of bread comes from. You know, there have been a few outbreaks. I went through the, uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has a database of all foodborne illnesses that are reported to it. And anything of a substantial size in the U.S. gets reported to the CDC. Between 98 and 2012, there were 142 outbreaks that were associated with bread of some kind. Nearly all of those had to do with cake. Mm. So a moist form of bread, usually served at a reception of some kind. It was baked at home, and it was mm. covered in sugar, and it was kind of a Petri dish for, for bacteria. Not to mention somebody blows on the birthday cake to blow out the candles. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, but there, was, you know, there have been some interesting outbreaks. There was one in Rochester where I think it was a supermarket bakery worker came in sick with hepatitis A was applying sugary glaze to Janishes, didn't uh, wear gloves or didn't wear them properly. And so the Danishes had hepatitis A on them. And that ended up sickening nine co-workers and 55 customers led to a recall of all of the bakery products. It was quite embarrassing for the grocery. That's an exceptional case, but it, it does happen once in a while. Yeah, and uh, you talk about you know, it's it's standard uh, practice. I forget if it, there's actually regulations about not reserving uh, appetizer bread that uh, has been put out in a restaurant and that patrons didn't eat. But I remember Anthony Bourdain in uh, Kitchen Confidential saying, you know what, bread is so safe. Go ahead and eat the bread. Don't worry if it might have been touched by somebody else already. The... We did an experiment where we went to a, a supermarket and towards the end of the day and bought a loaf that had a bag on it, but you know, the tip of the loaf was sticking out. Uh -huh. And, and this is, this is like a, a baguette that had, yeah. it had a paper, uh, around. paper it wrapper. It wasn't a sealed plastic. No, thing. not sealed up. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, you know, an artis quote, artisanal <laughs> loaf uh, style loaf. And it was, and then we did, um, some simple testing on it. You can, um, you know, use some UV fluorescent yeah. uh, spray like they do in CSI, right? And and pick up where people have touched the bread. And of course, it was just kind of lousy with fingerprints and handling marks on the bread itself, not just on the package. So that's the risk, is that somebody who's sick and hasn't washed their hands properly handles the bread and then you eat it and there's enough there to make you sick. But as Bourdain has said, there has to be enough of a pathogenic bacteria there to sort of overwhelm your pretty strong immune response. It's really a risk for people who are immunocompromised. Yeah. For people who have healthy immune systems, you probably shouldn't worry about it that right. much. And when you slice the bread with your dirty knife, and when you put the salami on the bread, yeah. chances are any illness-causing microbe, you're going to be the one introducing it. True. Well, Chances are. Cross-contamination is a big problem in kitchens. Right. So if you if you take your fresh spinach out of the refrigerator, put it on your countertop before you wash it, and then later you put your bread right on that spot, well it's gonna pick up whatever was on the spinach, right? And that might be E. coli from pigs that were running around in the spinach field, and that could make you sick pretty sure. quickly. And I never really considered, you know, if you, there are some places where when you when you buy a, a freshly made bread, they will slice it for you with a slicing machine if you ask for that. And I never thought about the fact that if you're really concerned about food safety, take the bread home whole. 
because it, there aren't as many surfaces then for something to get to it. There was one outbreak reported to the CDC uh, where a bakery worker who was sick, quite sick, really shouldn't have been coming to work, was charged with operating the slicing machine at, at a bakery, and she contaminated a whole lot of bread by contaminating the slicing machine. Yeah. And then they had to do a massive recall. Uh, so, yes, the slicing machine can be a point where, just like a bath where lots of different kinds of produce are washed, mm-hmm. is often in, in major produce outbreaks uh, the focal point for, for spreading the contamination. The slicing machine in the bakery is a similar sort of risk point. So we've talked a lot so far about uh, the potential for catching something from your food. And again, bread is a pretty minimal risk usually. Uh, but let's talk about the actual microbiology of the bread. What's going on with yeast and and bacteria at times? And uh, the you get the fungi on both ends. The yeast are fungi and you can't make leavened bread without them. Uh, but you also, as like you said, as soon as you take it out, you take that bread out and put it on the counter, the mold spores in the air are going to find that bread and you have, the clock is now ticking on your bread. And we all have seen our bread start to go and we we scrape off the visible parts of the mold on the surface. But as you point out, that's there's a lot that's still on there that you ain't getting. <laughs> yes. Well, so you can leaven bread in really in a couple of ways, right? There's, there's There are chemically leavened breads where you use baking soda or other generators of gas that will lift up your corn muffin mix. But most leavened bread is made leavened by life. And although it's possible to use only bacteria to leaven bread, you can use these lactic acids uh, bacteria, which also make carbon dioxide gas, to to do it. Uh, there are not many bread t- types that are like that. And those are very uh, oddly flavored breads, typically. They're very, um, people characterize them as tasting like feet <laughs> or it's a, a strong cheese or something like that. Um, so... Uh, then there you have the sourdoughs, which is sort of a hybrid where you mix bacteria and yeast together. They compete for one with one another uh, in a sort of chemical warfare that goes on. They're competing for? They're competing for the sugars and starches that are their food. And they're secreting, in the case of the bacteria, secreting lactic acid, which is toxic to the fungi. And the fungi are secreting alcohols, which are toxic to the bacteria. They sort of, it's an... Uh, they arrive at an equilibrium, a sort of detente, <laughs> where neither can outdo the other. Um, but commensally, they depress all of the other kinds of hundreds of different kinds of microbes that are in the mix that otherwise would kind of skunk the bread. And we have tend, as humans, tend to like the flavor of the little acidity that the, the lactic acid contributes to sourdoughs and then the, that yeasty umami flavor that the yeast give to the breads. And then, of course, you have the most common breads are yeast alone breads, where you introduce special strains of yeast that have been uh, selected, really, by humans for their properties of producing as much gas as possible. So they're really good at leavening, as opposed to, say, brewers' strains of yeast, which have been selected to make ethanol output and to be highly tolerant of high alcohol concentrations. But yeast, for yeast, the strategy uh, is to pee on their food as Nathan likes to say, it's the, the alcohol they secrete is a byproduct of their metabolism, but it is very effective at suppressing competition. Mm-hmm. 
right? This is why we don't get sick from booze, (laughs) except for the toxicity of the alcohol itself. Right. You point out that booze for a long time, for thousands of years of human history, was safer than water. That's right. You were way better off drinking a, a, a nasty tasting beer if you were an Egyptian worker than you were trying to drink out of the Nile <laughs> or any, and even a rain barrel, probably. Yeah. Uh, and there's an interesting question still undecided as to which came first, bread or beer, mm. as a source of yeast. Uh, the first breads and, and beers were almost certainly serendipitous discoveries that were sort of, you know, quote, contaminated by naturally occurring yeasts. And then somebody figured out that by taking a little bit of the bread, a little bit of the beer left over, rather than consuming it all, consuming it all and then adding it to fresh sugary fluid or to fresh dough, you could restart it, which must have seemed totally miraculous to people at the time. Yeah, magical. Indeed. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, the, the molds are going to get to your bread. It's sitting on the counter. Uh, you can put it in the fridge. That'll keep it longer, but a lot of people don't like to do that. But bread freezes really well, doesn't it? Bread freezes extremely well. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting, we have in the, in, the, in the book a chapter called The Physics of Food and Water that describes in, in great detail you know, how freezing works in bread. In general, you want, uh, at, in most uh, foods, you want smaller crystals, which means f- freezing fast. Yeah. For bread, though, uh, it's kind of an exception to the rule. There have been a lot of experiments on whether you should like, you know, put into a deep freeze, a blast freezer, and really cold and, and freeze it really quickly. That actually doesn't seem to produce the best results when you're, you're freezing, especially when you're freezing dough. Dough also freezes. Mm-hmm. And you can freeze it raw and then bring it out later and, and, and cook it. About 20, negative 20 C seem to be about the, the right temperature, the ideal temperature empirically. Uh, actually, the the physical chemists haven't figured out precisely why that is the case. Mm. But you do want to, if you're especially if you're freezing dough, right? You want to keep those yeast viable. And so, interestingly, in the lab, scientists who work with yeast as a model organism for all kinds of biology, they do freeze yeast cells at a very cold temperature very quickly. But in dough, uh, the yeast seem to get speared by the crystals the ice crystals as they form, if they form at a certain, under certain conditions. And so you have to just sort of handle it correctly mm-hmm. to preserve as much as possible. And then you have to add extra proofing time to give the yeast more time to reproduce and make gas. Uh, if they've thawed out of a frozen state, they're not quite as viable as if they were just drawn fresh from the starter. And that word proofing is the same as it is for uh, alcohol production? No, it's very different meaning. In alcohol production, proof refers to the strength of the concentration of alcohol uh-huh. in the beverage. And it's really the a double of the percentage by volume. Right. In bread making, proofing refers to the more vernacular sense of proving, right? So the proof is in the pudding. Well, the proof is in the rising for bakers, right? Was your yeast any good? Wait a while. <laughs> you'll find out if the bread doesn't rise no it was no good if the bread rises wait there's your proof <laughs> and so bread is proofed when it's fully risen and so that process bakers have come to refer to that process of letting the yeast do its work as proofing before before the before they heat it up and put it in the oven and a lot of the technique of baking involves 
working with the yeast cooperatively to encourage it to go faster, to slow it down. To, and you can do that by controlling the temperature, by controlling the amount of sugar in the bread, by controlling the water content of the bread, the, the amount of fat, and the other microbes that are in the bread competing with the yeast, as well as the strains of yeast you use, of course. So there are many factors. That's one of the things that makes bread so interesting, so complicated, so amenable to precision cooking, the kind that's appreciated by and used widely by modernist chefs, uh, is that bread, even though it's you think of it as this, one of the simplest foods, just four ingredients for basic yeast bread, you know, flour, salt, water, and yeast, uh, it's... You can get so many different varieties by adjusting the conditions under which it's made and how you handle it. More with W.A. Gibbs coming up, but first, a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca. Diagnosing ovarian cancer is often difficult for doctors who don't have extensive experience with the disease. And that challenge is at the heart of Survivors Teaching Students, a program of Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance. As part of the program, ovarian cancer survivors talk about their own experiences to medical students and thus help educate the students to recognize the symptoms of ovarian cancer in their future medical careers, whatever their role may be. This is a really special program because these students haven't yet specialized. They haven't chosen what they're going to do. They may go into gynecologic oncology, they may become a gynecologist, or they may not. But you never know what doctor a woman will go to see when they have their first symptoms. That's Audra Moran, president and CEO of Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, last year's winner of the President's Award for their Survivors Teaching Students Program at the 2019 Cancer Community Awards, sponsored by AstraZeneca. The President's Award recognizes those making a meaningful impact on the lives of cancer patients. The C2 Awards are a part of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which brings together the community that is working to drive meaningful change in cancer care. As we head into this year's awards, Scientific American Custom Media, in partnership with the awards, is taking a look back to visit with last year's winners and hear what they've been up to since we first met them. So it's been a year since you won the C2 Award. What's happened with your work since then? So over the last year, Survivors Teaching Students just continues to grow. It's a huge program. We have over 900 survivor volunteers around the country. It's a huge endeavor to coordinate, and so we were able, luckily with our wonderful President's Award, to upgrade a lot of what we do. We got new software to track our statistics, to let us be more efficient, to reach more people. So we've been able to grow the program, which we're thrilled about. We're reaching over 13,000 students uh, in a year, which we think is huge. So we were thrilled that that happened as a direct result of this award. And also, I mean, obviously with what's happening now, we've had to make some adaptations and we've done that very successfully. We've moved to a virtual environment and not all of our programs are currently operating because not all medical and nursing schools are open. But for those that are, we've been able to go virtual. And not only that, but an actual exciting outcome of this is that we're reaching places that we couldn't reach before. Sometimes we don't have survivor volunteers geographically located near some of the schools that are interested in having our program. So the virtual component has allowed us to reach those students. And we are so excited about that. It's amazing. And it's something we'll continue forward even once we're able to go back in the classroom. So again, you received the inaugural President's Award last year. What connections have you made because of the award? We actually met an ovarian cancer survivor. She's actually a writer. And she offered to do some writing for us. And we ended up recently just publishing a list of resources she put together uh, on ovarian cancer. So that was a wonderful connection. 
So after your experience last year, you decided to get involved as a judge this year. What are you seeing among this year's crop of nominees? You know, there are so many gaps in service and, you know, it's no one's fault. It just is what it is. You know, doctors are focused on treatment and on getting patients better that way. But oftentimes there's so many other things, psychosocial, economic, whatever those things are. And so many of these programs addressed those needs. So to judge these awards and to get to see all of those exciting things that people are doing, I think that was my takeaway is that it's happening. People are doing what needs to be done to take care of cancer patients. How do you see the general state of cancer research and cancer care today? I think it's a really exciting time, if there can be an exciting time. And I mean, cancer is obviously not a good thing, but cancer research is a great thing. And so I think it's a really exciting time in cancer research right now. There's so much progress being made in so many disease areas, and we're so hopeful in ovarian cancer. We've had three new drugs on the market in the last just few years, which is incredible. And, you know, we continue to make progress every day. Immunotherapy is obviously a large area of study right now. Genetics every day becomes more and more important. We're just, we're on the cusp, obviously, of, I think, even bigger findings than we've had. But for me to have been a part of this, I've been here for 10 years. I've seen such change in that 10-year period just for ovarian cancer. But for all cancers, I think it's just the right moment. And especially, I think, with the spirit of collaboration and shared science that investigators are starting to see is so important. I think we're going to see a lot of progress in the next few years. This podcast was made possible through the support of AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program. Audra Moran is the president and CEO of Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance. Now, more on modernist bread with W. Wade Gibbs. We've just been talking about how you can get so many different varieties of bread by adjusting the conditions under which bread is made and how you handle the ingredients. Nathan Mirvold and his team of researchers at the cooking lab did a experimental kind of process where they got all of the bread and and baking books that they could get their hands on and transcribed the recipes into sort of a basic formulaic form and made a database of thousands upon thousands of bread recipes. And the idea was to do a statistical analysis to see how recipes, say, for baguette cluster together. Mm -hmm. Because the expectation, the hypothesis was Clearly, if you're making baguette versus making sourdough versus making ciabatta, you'll see these very, you know, tight clusters where all the different recipes have something in common. It's either the proportion of ingredients or it's the proofing time or the amount of handling and kneading that goes into it, something. And the interesting result of that experiment was the hypothesis was disproved. (laughs) Nathan says, I couldn't have been more wrong. It's... That's why you do the weird, experiment. but true. This is why this is the yeah, science of it. Yeah. It's weird, but true that there are myriad paths to get to a good baguette or a good ciabatta. And it's, so bread is really a lot more flexible than you'd think as mm-hmm. a food. Then, then a lot of forms of cooking are actually, you know, if you're making, um, I don't know, a, a cheese, you know, you can imagine maybe it's a lot less flexible than this if you're making a, a very specific kind of cheddar or something like that. You really do have to control it in a certain way every time reproducibly. Not so, it, it appears, with, with bread. There are lots of different techniques and paths that you can use. And part of that probably is because you are working with living organisms and they, are, they adapt to their conditions. So you can sort of compensate. You can sort of suppress them at one point, but then give them extra growing room at another point in the process or vice versa. 
the salt as one of the four basic ingredients, is that just there for flavor or is that doing something uh, on a microbiological basis? The salt does have a microbiological effect. It's, yeast are uh, mildly salt intolerant. Salt causes, in the, in the dough, causes a, a process chemist known as osmosis. So it sets up an imbalance in concentration uh, between the sodium outside the cells, the yeast cells, and the sodium levels inside the cells. And as a result, water molecules move. So adding salt to the dough can draw water out of the yeast cells, dehydrating them and making it harder for them to reproduce. There are strains of yeast that are known as osmotolerant yeasts that will do especially well because they've been bred to do so in high salt environments. And so some of the recipes in our book that call for large concentrations of salt for flavor reasons require these osmotolerant yeasts mm. that have really been perfected by Japanese bakers, actually, who a lot of Japanese bread recipes are high in salt. Um, and they've developed these strains that do well in those conditions. But the reason salt is included in bread is one of the fundamental ingredients is because bread doesn't taste very good without it. Yeah. But you actually are using that salt to fine-tune the behavior of the yeast. Well, I, I put it this way. Yeah. The yeast have to deal with the salt you throw at them. So there's only so much salt you can throw at them before they just can't deal anymore. And they're going to give up on you and, and stop reproducing or stop metabolizing in the way that you want. The same is true with sugar. There's a limit to how much sugar, actually, you can put on, on yeast. Yeast are very interesting organisms. They're very adaptive and flexible. They have two distinct reproductive modes. They can reproduce asexually or sexually. Uh, they have distinct metabolic modes as well. Yeast, uh, we think of yeast as fermenting organisms, but yeast also can respire. And respiration is uh, a very distinct mode. They sort of switch into it uh, when the conditions are, are good for them. And then they don't make much alcohol and they don't make much gas either. So that's not great for bakers. Both bakers and brewers want to get, keep yeast usually in their fermenting state. And they'll ramp down for respiration and ramp up fermentation when you throw sugar at them. And genetically, we're a lot closer to yeast than a lot of people might like to either acknowledge or even know. In the book, we have uh, a spread where we show a gene from yeast and a gene from humans and highlight the sections that are in common. And almost the entire genes <laughs> is highlighted. It's really remarkable. I, I, I just downloaded these from databases that the NIH has. And I was shocked when I did the comparison at how much commonality there was in these two sort of randomly selected genes that happen to appear in both organisms, both species. And this, this is the reason that biologists love to use yeast as a model organism is because many of the fundamental cellular biological processes that go on in all of our human cells happen in yeast as well, even though evolutionarily speaking, we're very separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution. But look, all life shares at its core these same machinery. And you can learn a lot about how that machinery works. And Nobel Prizes have been handed out for work on yeast. It's contributed to our understanding of how cancer works mm -hmm. and many, many aspects of biology. And of course, yeasts are great because they reproduce so quickly. I just want to spend a moment talking about what's called salt rising bread, which I don't think I'd ever heard of. 
And uh, I'm bringing it up because it's an opportunity to talk about something bizarre and really disgusting. <laughs> so what is salt rising bread? And talk about this amazing experiment that somebody did. Okay. Well, uh, salt rising bread uh, is a kind of bread that was transported by the pioneers of the American frontier. Um, and it's kind of a misnamed bread. You, you'd think from the name that somehow you add salt to it and that helps it rise or something. And that's, that's not really the case. This is the kind of bread that was, um, the, the, there's a theory that the pioneers of Appalachia um, stored it, the starters for the bread in their salt barrels. And the barrels absorbed the heat from the sun, kept it at a nice temperature for their culture. <laughs> so it was sort of a good Petri dish. Salt rising bread is still sold commercially in parts of Appalachia, especially in West Virginia, where it's considered just part of the, the local staple. It's very odd bread in that it is uh, not a yeast bread. It is dominated by bacteria. And um, so most of the rising, it's, it's a dense bread. It doesn't rise a lot, but most of the rising is a result of the bacterial action. And the bacteria in it, uh, some scientists found, is an unusual bacteria for bread. <laughs> Back in 1911, uh, a biologist, Henry Coleman, um, analyzed the dough from this bread. And he was surprised to find that the bacteria in it is a well-known foodborne pathogen called Clostridium perfringens. It's actually one of the more dangerous foodborne pathogens. And this bread is just lousy with it. It is the dominant form of bacteria in the bread. So you would think it could make you terribly ill, and yet it doesn't. So it's kind of interesting. So a few years after uh, Komen discovered this, another biologist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Stuart Kozer, uh, did an experiment to see whether this was really Clostridium perfringens. So he found a culture of that bacteria that had been isolated from the festering wound of a soldier and used it to make salt-rising bread. In people, this bacteria causes a condition known as gas gangrene, which is just as horrific as it sounds and is a big cause of amputations in soldiers. And it does not smell good. No, it's horrible and it's appearance and in its odor and in its effect on the person who has it. So the amazing thing is that although people have been eating this for generations now, this salt rising bread that's just chock-a-block full of Clostridium perfringens, there's not yet any report of anyone being sickened by it. There are a couple reasons this could be the case. One is this could be a different strain or subspecies of the bacteria that becomes dominant in the bread culture and is different from the kind that causes sickness. Or it could be that the pasteurization process of baking is sufficient that it kills enough of the bacteria that whatever's left over is not enough to be an infective dose. The infective dose of this particular bacterium is pretty high. So you need to consume quite a bit of it to get sick if you have a functioning immune system. And baking is pretty effective at killing off bacteria since you reach high temperatures within the bread, well over the boiling point. Have you ever tasted it? I haven't had it. It's hard to get your hands on. Got to go to Appalachia to get it. 
Yeah, certain parts of West Virginia, you'll find it in stores. They've been sometimes certain schools there. You know, years ago, uh, there was a brewing company that was trying to pitch the fact that they had figured out the recipe for mead, which had been lost for a thousand years. And so they were advertising uh, in in magazines mostly that I recall, you know, actual authentic mead. We've brought it back. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and his response was, they never lost the recipe for bread. (laughs) Indeed. So, you know, mead mustn't have been so terrific. (laughs) <laughs> if if they just forgot how to bother to make it one day, whereas we've been eating bread for all of human civilization, basically. Bread has improved dramatically since Roman times. In the book, we have recipes. If you're interested in making ancient breads, we've done our best to recreate what bread was like in Pompeii, for example, you know, the, the, the suburb before. of Rome, you know, of Naples, <laughs> that got buried by Mount Vesuvius when it erupted in 87 AD. Yeah. There, there was preserved in somebody's house a fresco showing a bakery with the baker handing out loaves of bread to cu- customers in full color. One of the few surviving ancient images of a commercial bakery. Wow. Uh, so we wanted, Nathan wanted to make a photographic version of that fresco. So in my basement workshop, I constructed the set for this, the the actual bakery counter and the cabinet, and we hired a costumer to make the costumes, and we got people to come in who resembled the people in the fresco, including the little boy, and made a photograph of the the betogad baker and his purple-robed customers. (laughs) Uh, And the Pompeian bread was interesting. This ancient Roman bread was, there were very large loaves, and the tops were divided into wedge shapes and then stamped with a trademark right. of the baker. It's one of the first recorded uses of trademarking, actually. And there are lots of speculation among historians about, A, how they made those wedge things. We tried all the different theories, and the truth is none of them worked particularly well. It's still an unsolved problem. And B, why they did that. The working theory is that probably bread was usually sold like pizza is in New York City by the slice. Except they didn't have bread slicing. They just had wedges. So they just sort of would pull a wedge out and sell it that way. But, you know, it's sort of like the the Subway party sub. You could take the whole loaf home if you want to and (laughs) just pay the extra price for the whole thing. And then people divvy it up. I think that these branded breads are... Featured in uh, the HBO series Rome in one episode, if I remember correctly. Don't hold me to it, but I think that it's just, you know, it's not a big scene or anything. It's just setting the the uh, the kind of background for what life was like back then. And you see somebody, just for a few seconds, selling these branded breads on the street. And, you know, maybe somebody else saying something like, oh, yeah, yeah, his stuff is really good. Um What happens to bread when you toast it that's so marvelous? We all have our preferences about toast, right? Some people like a little scorching. Some people like it really light. I myself like it nice and evenly brown. And there's a reason that I like it that way. That brown is a result of the Maillard reaction. Maillard reaction is a suite of chemical reactions that happen in browning foods of all kinds, especially if they have any sugar in them. Um... Some people call it caramelization, but it's actually different chemically from caramelization. 
So when you brown meats, when you brown onions, when you brown bread, that those Maillard reactions are transforming sugars and starches into more complex aromatic compounds that are really complicated, actually, chemically speaking. And they give off volatile aromas, which are just awesome to smell, right? This is why when you're making a stew or you're grilling meat or you're baking bread, you walk in, in the kitchen and you just inhale and go, oh, yeah. <laughs> those, uh, those Maillard reactions are great because they, are, they make interesting flavors, not just, not just simple sweets, yeah. but really complicated, interesting flavors. And they, they're highly dependent on what you start with. So the Maillard flavors that you get out of grilled meat are different from those that you get from grilling vegetables or you know, sautéing onions or toasting bread. And they're, they're all very distinctive. And even for different types of bread, some toast better than others, for sure. I know. A fresh bread out of the oven, there's nothing that compares to that. But when the bread has been sitting for three or four days, then it's better toasted to, to my palate. There's a reason, chemical reason that old bread is better toasted. And that's because of staling, right? When staling, a lot of people think of as the bread drying out, but that's actually not the dominant phenomenon that's happening in staling. Staling, uh, what happens is the starches gelatinize. There's this retrogradation process that happens and the starches in the bread start to sort of agglomerate and, and, and form these crystals that cause the bread to stiffen and lose a lot of its flavor, the texture you want, the softness. When you toast the bread, or even when you heat it up and not toast it, just heat it up to, you know, just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit or so, um, those crystals melt. And you can restore a lot of the, you can unstale the bread, essentially, by heating it up. You get that for free when you toast. And then you go above that and beyond and you, and you create these Maillard flavors. So not only does the bread sort of unstale, but you get the, the new flavors on top. And it's just way better than trying to eat it in a sandwich without toasting it. Yeah. So man does not live by bread alone, but you can come real close. You can for a while. <laughs> you amazingly, the body is amazingly resilient at, at uh, turning one kind of nutrient into another kind of nutrients. So although bread... Um, doesn't have all of the nutrients you need. If it's enriched in particular, it has a fair fraction of what you need for, for quite a while. It has proteins, it has fats, it has sugars, and it has vitamins mm -hmm. and s some minerals. It also has, it has <laughs> flavor and it has texture. I, a lot of meals without a, you know, pasta without a piece of bread to me is just not complete. There's, I think uh, Nathan and Francisco would argue, there's an unexplored or underexplored realm still in fine dining of taking advantage of the amazing variety of textures and flavors you can get in bread and pairing that thoughtfully with the textures and flavors you have in the other foods in the meal. Bread too often, in fact, almost universally, even at very expensive, very great restaurants, has been an afterthought. Uh, many of them don't even make their own bread. Yeah. That's how little they consider it important. But some of the best restaurants now, Noma is, uh, is, is one well-known for this in, in, uh, in Copenhagen, will actually have a bread course. They will 
make their own breads and they will pair them with the foods in a very specific way and with beers, other fermented you know, beverages that, that for obvious reasons go well with the fermented food like, like bread and make that a real part of the integral part of the dining experience. So it seems likely that as the years go forward, this is going to trickle down into uh, what we see in restaurants that all of us eat at all the time. And that uh, as chefs think more about how they can use bread as a true part of the meal and not as just a something to put out to be thoughtful. Or to keep you busy while you're waiting for your <laughs> as actual food. a placeholder for, for a pacifier, yes. Uh, that that it'll it'll really become a an integral part and an important part of fine dining. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.